Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. I'll make a start. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are here with us, that you are here for us, that you are here through us and in us and to us. Just thank you for your, your, your great presence. So by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would um, instill in our hearts your words, your words that we live by, your words that bring vitality, that bring life, that bring uh, fruitfulness. Just come Holy Spirit and have your way with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> so we're finishing off the um, Silence and Solitude uh, rule of life series today um, and and the final kind of thing we're going to look at is encountering God so we've, we've talked about silence and solitude in general uh, we, we spoke about encountering our kind of our self uh, the false self and the true self uh, Steve last week spoke about encountering uh, the enemy that the resistance that, that gets put up against us trying to like enter into that into that space but today I'm going to talk about encountering God and really I feel that this is what it's all about all of the rule of life practices, all of, all of the Christian practices as a whole, is all about encountering Jesus, loving God and loving neighbour. Because if it's not about encountering Jesus, if all of these uh, rule of life practices that we've spoken about, these spiritual disciplines, if, if it's not fundamentally about encountering Jesus, then they are just mindfulness practices. They are just um, progressive corporate productivity boosters with a Christian veneer. That's all they are if it isn't about fundamentally meeting with Jesus. Rule of life practices as a whole, silence and solitude specifically, are not about productivity. They're about fruitfulness. And that sounds like semantics, but I just want to kind of unpack what that is because we need to get away from these ideas of just having habits, atomic habits for successful people. Because a lot of what we do as Christians would fit into that bracket nicely. I'm reading a book about balancing work life and parenting and thriving. And so many chapters in that book could have come from uh, a Christian manual about rule of life, spiritual disciplines. In, all you'd have to do is write Jesus somewhere in the paragraphs and then you'd be good. <clears throat> Christianity is not about being more efficient or more proficient. It's about Jesus. For sure, as a church, as an institution, as an organisation, not just this church, but church as a whole, things can be done smarter, things can be done better, things can be better organised, better managed. But that is management. That is not fundamental Christian spiritual relationships. And it's really key that we understand this. Christianity as a whole is fundamentally marked by wastefulness, by its inability to be efficient or effective in all of the traditional ways. It, it cuts across the grain of success metrics that we have in the world, and it always has. It is a strange and peculiar way of living, and it always has been, right from the Exodus, juxtaposed against the, the power and might of Egypt, all the way up to how like, the disciples acted within the, the, the empire of Rome. 
It's never been about productivity. It's never been about being successful by the way the world measures success. It's always been wasteful. It's always been weird and strange and peripheral. Productivity would have gone to Herod the Great. The spirit went to an engaged teenage girl. Productivity would have gone to Caesar, would have gone to Pontius Pilate, would have gone to Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests. But instead, the spirit found John in the wilderness. This is one of my favorite verses, just because it's so pointed. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip the Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. It's a list of the famous, the most effective, and the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. It came to a nobody in nowhere. I love it. I just love that that's how Christianity starts. I began exploring the rule of life. And this, if you actually go back and look at the blogs from about three or four years ago, you'll see where I start kind of tapping into spiritual disciplines and stuff. Because I recognised that I was productive, but I wasn't fruitful. <coughs> I could stand up and preach. I could play the guitar pretty well. I've worked for a Christian charity. I've visited prisoners. I've smuggled Bibles. I've hung out with Christian celebrities. And that all sounds like some sort of brag, but it amounts to nothing because all of those things can be done with a bit of wit, a bit of luck, a bit of charisma. Doesn't need one ounce of the spirit. And Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians, you could give your body to be burnt. You could give all of your goods away, but yet have not love. And it means nothing. Because I was productive. I could coast in the Christian life. I could name drop at key moments. I could talk about the time that I hung out with Tim Hughes. But it doesn't mean anything if there's not coming from a heart that is engaged with Jesus Christ. Because I was impatient, I still am. Ill-tempered, grumpy, judgmental, willful, selfish, harsh, cold. All of these characteristics that I see in myself. <coughs> Nothing of the spirit was required to do all of those successful, productive things. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of these things aren't flashy. They're not immediately applauded. If, I'm really gentle. Ah, oh, but I hung out with Brother Andrew. Which one of those people is going to get cheered on in any circle? Which one of those people is going to get a platform to speak in a church? I'm really patient. I've stuck with this thing for 15 years. Yeah, but I, I was at Soul Survivor. What platform is going to be given, right? Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And I love that kind of 
Productivity is all these outward, flashy, flamboyant things. But fruitfulness is staying in step with the Spirit. Fruitfulness, you can't force those things in a genuine way. You will be found out if you try to pretend to be any of those fruitful things. But you can fake being productive. You can be out of step with the Spirit and look successful. I've shared this story before, but it's worth sharing again, I think. Yeah, because it was after uh, the pandemic I started really tapping into this idea about mental health. I, I don't feel that I particularly struggled during the pandemic. Um, but I just realised mental health was like a big thing. I don't know if you remember the, the buzz about it. And I was like, well, I need to start grounding myself in like good practices to like not only help my own mental health, but be more sensitive to other people with, with like that are facing struggles with it. So I began cultivating this prayer time in the morning. And uh, I remember like carving out this time, I'd wake up a little bit earlier than everybody else and have this time, and then I'd be trying to center myself on Jesus. You know, all good things, all good things. Dallas Willard would be proud. But then, then Emma and Sarah would kind of come crashing downstairs. Oh, Daddy, can I have breakfast? You know, can I put the telly on or whatever? And straight away, you know, it's like the spirit got spooked or something and went away, because then I was just like... What are you doing? I'm being really holy right now. Sort it out, girls. And then there was this one time when I was, I was literally, and I kid you not, I was meditating on spending time with the Father, and I had this image in my brain about sitting in the lap of the Father like a child. And then Sarah comes in and wants to sit in my lap, and impatiently, I tell her to go away. And right then, you know like those moments when you just feel God like his presence it probably should have been a lightning bolt just for my sheer hypocrisy but it was more like a, a bit of a sly sly sideline look and a bit of an eye roll from god but i got the message because the thing is as i was being productive oh yeah i have my morning quiet time how spiritual am i i'm still impatient hideously so there's a difference between being productive and being fruitful The rule of life, Steve's brilliant kind of example from the trellis, helps us to be fruitful. <clears throat> and again, as Steve says, no one ever drinks a bottle of wine and says, man, the trellises for this grape must have been great. But people enjoy the wine. They don't realise the effort that's gone into cultivating those grapes. And that's the beautiful thing about fruitfulness, because it happens. And usually the end product is felt by people, but they, they can't credit it to anything. <clears throat> Spiritual practices, all of them, all of the rule of life stuff that we've been talking about, is not about cramming more into your schedule. It's not about being more effective with your time. Okay? It's about renunciation. It's about pairing back, stripping back to the one thing. To carry on the, the, the Vinter imagery. It's about a pruning. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. It's about figuring out, not for us, but for God to figure out in our own lives. What is going to make you more like Jesus? What is going to 
conform you more to the image of Christ and pairing back and discovering in relationship with the Father, encountering him and just centering on the things that are going to be truly fruitful. And they aren't always the flashy fill your CV and put it on your LinkedIn profile things. They're the hidden things, the secret things. The things that don't come with a fanfare or a smoke machine or a stage at Soul Survivor. <coughs> Being in constant and direct contact with Jesus the vine and being judiciously pruned by the Father, having things that come up and it's just like, okay, I need to let that go. These are the things that make us fruitful. As we encounter him, we begin to bear the hallmarks of people that have been around him. You know, in Acts where it says, you guys have been around Jesus. I love that and I'd love somebody to say that of me one day. You're the sort of person that seems like he hangs around with Jesus. The hallmarks of people that have encountered the good shepherd, the lover of my soul, the prince of peace, the gentle one whose burden is light. That's what fruitfulness looks like. We become like him, the one whom, in whose image we've been made. <clears throat> in some ways, this rule of life stuff is really, really wasteful. It cuts against the grain of how we want to organise our time because it isn't about productivity and it's not pragmatic why on earth would you spend 15-20 minutes in your day reading the genealogies to everybody on the doing the bible reading and you're like it's been three chapters of genealogies of shem <laughs> i don't care <laughs> Why would you waste your time doing that? You could be doing anything else. Catching up on the news, catching up on like the, the Slack forums at work or whatever it is. Why would you care that it's pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell on the hem of the priest's garment? You could spend five minutes better than that, I'm pretty sure. Why try and spend that time trying to corral your busy mind into just being silent and still to engage with God. When you can pick up a podcast and get a download from whoever the new hip preacher is, why would you spend time trying to cultivate your own engagement with God in that way? It's not a productive use of your time. It's really flipping hard to try and be silent and still. It's not productive, but it is fruitful. We engage with God because deep down, deep down we know. Where else are we going to go? We are Christians because we believe at an existential level that there's something deeply embedded in the whole of life, in the way that life and creation is oriented, that is connected with God. Somehow the vitality of all of creation draws its energy from him. At some fundamental level, we are Christians because we recognise we need to be connected to that source of life. Where else are we going to go? In the midst of our trouble, Susie prayed it. In the midst of our chaos, in the midst of our unknowing, 
in the midst of the challenges that we all face, really, what fundamental foundational place are we going to go? There is nowhere else to go. Who's going to be our rock, our firm foundation, our fortress? There is no other name under heaven by which we are saved. There is nowhere else to go. <clears throat> and I love this verse. Because this comes just after Jesus has fed the 5,000. And it says they wanted to make him king. So Jesus withdrew. And then there's the, the whole bit about the lake. And then they find him. And so Jesus gives his great sermon. It's a terrible sermon, a terrible, terrible message. The people that say, oh, Jesus was just a great teacher, they have never read any of his teaching. He's a terrible teacher. Really offensive, really out of step with what's going on. Really unproductive. Yeah, you've got to eat my flesh. 5,000 men, plus women and children, left. He was that offensive. He was that bad a teacher that he couldn't, carry, he couldn't bring along with him some portion of 5,000 men plus women and children with him. And then he turns to the disciples and says, you're not going to leave me then? And Simon Peter says, where else are we going to go? I have no idea what you just said, Jesus. That sounds wildly offensive. But somehow we know that you're the only one with the words of life. Where else would we go? Jesus was unproductive. He had 5,000 people, and that number is really key, because that's about the, the number in the legion. If he wanted to usher in the kingdom of God, as Israel comprehended the kingdom of God as a military national entity, he had 5,000 men, plus women and children, at his beck and call that wanted, at that moment in time, to make him king. He could have done it for a short period of time. No doubt, he could have marched on Jerusalem, gathering people as he went, and done it. But he alienated all of those people. He was wildly unproductive. And everybody abandons him, except for the disciples. But they knew that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Somehow there's a vitality, an energy, a life that can only come from that source. We can live, we can breathe, we can make money. We don't need Jesus for that, but to live truly, to realise our true selves, we need to encounter him. When we struggle, circumstances beyond our control, when things are feeling like they're piling up, when you feel disempowered, wildly disempowered by things, where else are we going to go? <clears throat> Jesus withdrew to know the Father in that moment. And I'd suggest that's a good map for us to follow. <clears throat> to kind of finish things off, I've been really captured by Mary of Bethany. A really um, interesting character in the Gospel. Um, <clears throat> she kind of exemplifies this zeroing in on the one thing. Of all of the good things, of all the productive things, she really exemplifies this, honing in on the one thing that matters being pruned to know exactly what the key thing is at any one time. 
Um, we only know a little bit about Mary of Bethany, kind of church tradition kind of conflates about the million Marys that are in the Gospels all into one person. But there are three definite episodes in the Gospels that are definitely about Mary of Bethany. Oh, I should put this quote up because this is really cool. Son Kierkegaard said, Purity of heart is to will the one thing. By saying yes to something, this is a Rob Bellism actually, by saying yes to something, you are inevitably saying no to a multitude of other things. Productivity would try and tell you to say yes to as many things as possible. Fruitfulness tells you to say yes to the one thing. The pure in heart shall see God. So there's three things that we know about Mary of Bethany definitively. Or oh, okay, let's just flesh out who she is. Mary of Bethany, her sister, her older sister is Martha. Her brother is Lazarus. And she lives in a place called Bethany. The three times that she's mentioned in that context that we can definitely know this is her is in Luke 10, where she sits at the feet of Jesus. We all know these stories. John 11, where her brother Lazarus has died. And John 12, where she anoints the feet of Jesus and then washes it with her hair. And each of these episodes, I think, paints a brilliant picture of the difference between being productive and being fruitful because she's engaged with Jesus Christ. So first, in Luke 10 then, we all know this story and Martha comes up, gets like a pretty bad rap in this, doesn't she? It's always like, follow Mary, she's a great example, and Martha, oh, she's terrible. And to be honest, that's exactly what I'm going to do now. <coughs> I think it's... Martha is doing exactly what she should be doing. She's doing the really, really good thing. She's honouring her guests. Okay, she's following in the footsteps of Sarah and Abraham. Sarah that goes and creates just an enormous amount of bread for these three mysterious guests that turn up to Abraham. Okay, look up how much flour she gets to create bread for three guests. It's a ridiculous amount. She's doing exactly what culture would expect of her, and she's doing it really, really well. She's making sure that she's entertaining her guests. She's welcomed all of these random people. There's Jesus, but his whole entourage has turned up. And she is, she is looking after them really, really well. Hospitality is such a major thing in Middle Eastern culture, even today. It'd be wildly offensive, wildly dishonouring to Jesus and all of his cronies if she didn't serve them. Okay, so Martha is not doing a bad thing. She's doing a brilliant and beautiful thing. And Mary, by contrast, is doing something wildly offensive. She is not looking after the guests. She's not even helping her older sister look after the guests. These are all kind of massive cultural faux pas. I hope you can understand how like wildly like um, dishonouring this is to like Martha and to Jesus. The fact that she doesn't lift a finger to help feed them, look after them, wash their feet, all of this stuff. And then she even has the audacity to take on the role of a learner of a rabbi by sitting at the feet of Jesus. I'm going to place myself here. I don't care what else is going on. 
I'm going to take, I'm in a position of taking from Jesus. I'm not giving to Jesus, as is the role of hospitality. I am demanding something from him as a student. Wildly offensive. She is not productive at all. She's not winning over people. She's not demonstrating her best qualities. But it is fruitful. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. And rightly so, I'd be majorly hacked off if you, <laughs> you know, like if somebody else wasn't contributing to help entertain these guests. But few things are needed, or indeed only one, Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus cuts through all of the niceties, all of the exemplary virtues that Martha is showing. The good and respectable things. And somehow he sees, he perceives, he understands what Mary is doing. And the beautiful thing about this is that Mary has chosen this thing. But the fruit of it doesn't just impact Mary, it impacts Martha, because it becomes, Martha, you're allowed to stop. You're allowed to come and join Mary and learn from me. So the fruit of Mary's action bears fruit in Martha's life. <coughs> Another really great one, John 11. So, it's actually quite a long story. Lazarus dies, and Jesus waits. Bizarrely, he waits. He makes the conscious decision not to go while Lazarus is still alive. He waits until Lazarus dies. And then he turns up at Bethany, and Martha comes straight out and says, Jesus, where were you? If you would have been here, he would have been all right. Faith. Martha's got faith. If you'd have been here, everything would be okay. Jesus takes a moment to teach her. Go read the story. You know, don't worry, this isn't the end for Lazarus. Oh yes, teacher, I know, because he'll be raised on the last day. There's a theological discussion in the midst of their grief. Martha has taken the initiative She's gone to Jesus because that's what all good Christians do, right? We seize the initiative. We boldly go into the presence. Where's Mary? After Martha has gone to Jesus, before he's even got to the house, Martha's gone and intercepted him. Martha then has to go back. After, this, she, after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. The Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Exactly what Martha said, by the way. Exactly, word for word. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Really, again, I think we want to applaud Martha for seizing the initiative, for rushing out to see Jesus, for her exemplary faith of saying, Jesus, if you'd have been here, you wouldn't have died. 
Mary says exactly the same thing. But what's intriguing is, is that Mary doesn't rush out. She waits. She's in her grief. She's in that space. She isn't putting on airs and graces. She is grieving. But as soon as she's aware that Jesus is asking for her, she responds. She's in a space where she still hears the summons of Jesus. And everybody around her notes how swift she is to respond when she knows that Jesus is asking for her. What's tremendously beautiful is, is that Martha gets a theological discourse about the resurrection. When Jesus sees Mary weeping, he is moved. And he weeps, famously the shortest verse in the New Testament. And I love that. There's something about being in a space of waiting responsively to the summons of Jesus. And this is where we come into silence and solitude, because how can we clearly hear the summons of Jesus if we've got all the other noise going on? I was going to do it today, but I've done it before, so I felt like I couldn't do it. But, you know, like, I think I put on some, like, Nirvana tune really loud and some classical music really quietly. And the only way that you could tune into the classical music was by dialing down the loud abrasive music and slowly allowing this gentle voice to start to appear. And that's what silence and solitude is all about as a rule of life. It's about dialing down the noise. Not necessarily amplifying the other, noise, the other voice, the one voice. But it's about dialing this down enough so that you can hear. And as soon as you hear, you can respond. I just love that. And the fruit of this, and this is beautiful, is that God responds to her response. The emotion that is in Mary that she brings to Jesus moves the heart of God, which is a tremendous thing, mind-blowing. <clears throat> when Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved. Mary brought all of her grief, all of the challenge that she was facing, all of the questions she had. She didn't airbrush it. You know, like Job, didn't cover up the pain, like two-thirds of the Psalms. It didn't cover up the pain with religious lingo and vacuous positivism. It brought it all before Jesus. She brought it all there, her grief. Yeah. Where the heck were you, Jesus, in my pain? You could have made a difference. What the hell is going on, Jesus? We struggle with this as Christians. We always want to put the positive spin on it. Ah, yeah, but at the end of Job, he gets twice back. I don't know about you. That would not make up for the family that I'd already lost. Vacuous positivism is not Christianity. It's not fruit-bearing. It's productivity. It's looking at the metrics. I got twice what I had before. Oh, that must be very good then. No. Mary brings all of this crap to him and moves him is beautiful and then finally John 12 we all know this one as well and this it, this couldn't be more blunt to be honest she takes wonderfully named perfume called Nard and pours it out on his feet and washes it with her hair 
And in case we don't get the message, Judas stands up and says, ah, what a waste. That is completely impractical. We could have put this in little bottles and sold it for 20 denarii each. We'd have had all of this profit and we could have given it all to the poor. I've got a business plan for it. We've got like an Etsy site and everything for it. <laughs> completely unproductive. Absolutely wasteful. There's no doubt about it. It is not a pragmatic choice of what to do with that perfume. Completely undignified. Completely lavish. And yet, somehow, it was tremendously fruitful. <clears throat> because Jesus calls out as a fundamental an exquisite point in the salvation narrative. Mary has somehow tapped into, whether she knew it or not, exactly what was coming up for Jesus. Out of everybody, nobody got what Jesus was about to go through. But somehow, Mary anointing his body for burial in this prophetic act brought him some comfort. I'm doing the right thing and I'm going to go through this. Whether she comprehended that's exactly what she did or not, Jesus calls it out, not her. Mm. And the beautiful thing about this, and this is something that again Steve shared, is that not only did Jesus smell of that perfume, everybody else in that room was impacted. Whether they were offended at her or not, Judas went out of that building smelling exactly the same as Jesus in that moment. And that's the beautiful thing about fruitfulness. Because if I become more gentle, not only do I benefit, but everybody around me benefits as well. And it's not forced, it's not contrived. If I become more gentle, if I spend more time with Jesus and I become more patient, if I become a kinder person, everybody benefits. More of the kingdom is seen. <clears throat> Silence and solitude may seem pointless, wasteful of our time but I just you know we have so little time as it is we're juggling so many things there's so many distractions that are so hard to put aside we're not trying to add more things into that calendar and also this isn't some sort of spiritual decluttering We could do better things with our time, right? We could sleep a bit more. Sometimes at, you know, 6am, I feel like, oh, I could have done with the lion this morning. Or, oh God, please, I don't need to read about how many curtains there were in the temple at half past ten at night when you've had a long day. But to encounter God in this particular and peculiar way in silence and solitude that cuts against the grain of every productivity metric, of every way we think life should be oriented, is so worth it. Waste that time in silence and solitude. Wait and respond to his voice. Pour out your heart's perfume in these sacred moments. All of these things are abiding in that vine. They're all tapping into that vitality and energy of life without worrying about all of the many things that you should productively be doing. Bear fruit in your life and it will impact those around you in ways that are above and beyond your control or contrivance.
So in Jesus' name, Heavenly Father, I pray you help us just to stay in that place of abiding, to stay waiting and responding to you swiftly. Father, that we'd encounter you in increasing ways and that we'd bear the fruit of the Spirit, not the productivity of the world. So come, Lord Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.